looking through this uh, account of the life of Jesus written by Matthew and we come to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew has his gospel divided up into five sections for us and chapter 18 is the fourth section in the gospel where Jesus is turning his attention to really training his disciples to show them what is it that that what it is that characterizes the life of his gathered people, the life of his people together, the church, okay? And we're going to read from Matthew chapter 18, from verses 1 to 14. And here's what God's word says to us today. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Or he, that's Jesus, called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. So see that you do not look down on one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think if a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away? Will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. Amen. This is God's word. Well, Muhammad Ali is surely the greatest. Well, that's what he thinks. Um, He's quote-tastic when it comes to pride. (laughs) Muhammad Ali, the, the former boxing world champion of decades ago, he said that he was the greatest. Uh, He said things like, I'm so fast that when I turn the light off, I'm in bed before it gets dark. I must be the greatest. Now, when I first read that, I thought he was talking about just being the greatest boxer that ever lived. But actually, no, he's broadened his field to just take in, well, humanity. (laughs) I am the greatest. I'm the king of the world. You must listen to me, he said. Not exactly someone with a problem with self-esteem is he? He says, this is the best one, it's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. I am the greatest. Now, is that what you think about yourself? Do you think you're the greatest? Now, many of us would not 
be as bold as Muhammad Ali, but there, there aren't many people who are as openly boastful and brag like he does. Not many of us have got that kind of swagger. I'm glad about that. Now, most of us, though, are still prideful. Thinking of ourselves as being great in some respect, better even than other people. Most of us exercise some restraint, though, over how boastful we are. But we have to admit, sometimes we think we're greater than others. We're better than them because we have maybe a better education, more letters after our name. uh, Because we're wealthier, we have more money in the bank. Uh, Maybe it's because we think we're better parents. Our kids do not behave the way their kids behave. We all find things, all sorts of things like that, that tend to give us almost a sense of superiority over people. Well, that's wrong. The Bible calls it out for what it is. It's pride. Pride. Pride, something that people in our city, in our nation, think is generally a good thing. Be proud of yourself. They say, boast in your achievements. Don't be ashamed of these things. It's good for your self-esteem. It's, for, it's healthy and holistic. It's good. And some people would go as far as to say, well, actually, there can be a, a bad kind of pride. The swagger of Ali, for example. People can still look down on that. But not many people consider pride to be a bad thing, a wicked thing. Though the Bible says so. Uh, John Stott said, in every area of your life, in every sphere of Christian discipleship, pride is your greatest enemy and humility your greatest friend. Well, the disciples are clearly having some trouble with this. Um, Mark's account of the same story tells us that they're actually arguing amongst themselves about who is the greatest and then Matthew in chapter 18 verse 1 tells us that they actually go up and ask Jesus to settle it who is the greatest can you imagine the discussion what did that look like well I keep the money back surely I'm the greatest you know, maybe they're trying to rank themselves they're trying to rank themselves in some respect of superiority you can understand a little bit why In Matthew 16, we've heard Jesus say, who do people say I am? And they'll say, oh, some say this, some say that. And he says, who do you say I am? And they say, well, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah that we've been waiting for, the king. In other words, you're the one who's superior. Good. Yes, you've got that right. That's exactly who I am, Jesus says. And he says, I'm going to build this church. So he's talking, this is the king of the kingdom that they've been waiting for. And now this kingdom, kingdom mindset, in any kingdom there is hierarchy. So that's why they're starting to jostle for position. Now maybe they think that Peter's top dog already. Maybe he's, got the, he, maybe he's Jesus' right hand man. So maybe they're looking for the left hand man or woman. You know, but, but still, Peter has just been called Satan by Jesus. Get behind me Satan. That's going to bring him down the pecking order a little bit. Maybe his point, position's even up for grabs. So they're starting, well, I've driven out more demons than you. You know, what, they're, they're, they're vying for position and status in this kingdom. James and John's mum even gets on the act a little bit later on. Jesus, do me a favor, she says later on. When you come into your kingdom, can James sit on your left and John sit on your right? And she says, you don't know what you're asking. They're vying for position. That's what pride does. So they come to Jesus. Settle it for us, Jesus. Who is the greatest? And Jesus' response provides something of a challenge for not just them, but for us all. In terms of our mindsets and our attitudes. 
towards each other. So here's the map for where we're going with this. There are three points this morning. Uh, Verses 1 to 4, be humble, that's number 1. Number 2, be warned, verses 5 to 9. Number 3, be loving, that's 10 to 14. So number 1, be humble. Jesus says in here, change your attitude towards yourself. Pride's wrong. Change your attitude towards yourself, or you might not even get into this kingdom. Never mind have a position in it. So Jesus says you need to change your attitude. Look with me, verse 2. He called a little child and had him stand among them, and he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So they asked the question, Jesus, who is the greatest? And he says, stop, 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 stop. Disciples, your attitude stinks. You just don't get this. This has to change. This is a serious error in your thinking. And if you don't do something about this attitude toward each other, you won't need to worry about jostling for positions in this kingdom. You, you won't even get into it. It's a serious thing to say. That packs a lot of punch. And as soon as he gets a whiff of pride, he says, change. Change it. Now, pride, you can understand why. Pride, pride makes you want to be the center of it all. It makes you want to be first. It makes you want to be heard above everybody else. It makes you jealous when other people are praised because you're not being praised. Pride makes us compete unhelpfully with each other. Pride actually makes us look down on each other. Pride can even make us despise each other and Jesus says this needs to change if you think like that you don't understand what this kingdom is all about he says the church I'm building Jesus says will not be characterized by pride so are you prideful it's a question we have to ask how would we know well let me give you five common ways that pride can rear its ugly head and see if we can identify with any of these number one if you're a fault finder you probably struggle with pride. So do you find yourself talking about other people in ways that almost filters out God's goodness toward them? Maybe you can't bring yourself to praise them for anything. You sift out those things and only talk about another person's faults. Why? Maybe because in doing so, that's just a way of making you look good. And that's what's most important to you. If you do that, if you're a fault finder, you probably struggle with pride. Secondly, if you have a harsh attitude towards others, you probably struggle with pride. So do you find yourself speaking of others in a judgmental way? Even with a kind of frustration or irritation? Maybe you wish people could just sort themselves out, like you have. Or maybe number three, if you're regularly defensive, you probably struggle with pride. So when someone disagrees with you, or worse, criticizes you, do you find yourselves arguing about the facts or disputing the other person's interpretation? Do you turn it back and say, well, as I look around, I realize I'm not the only sinner in the room. Do we find ourselves acting in that way? If so, you probably struggle with pride. You're not willing to consider the fact that there might be something wrong in you, something that needs corrected. Prideful people think they're beyond correction. 
Or number four, if you're regularly looking for attention, you probably struggle with pride. So maybe you find yourself shamelessly boasting. Maybe someone's halfway through a conversation and they've got a story. You're not even listening to them. You're thinking about a story that you've got that you think betters that story. Or maybe you're always posting stuff on Facebook or social media quietly. Not really quietly, actually. Bragging about stuff to everyone. Maybe you find it impossible to say no to people when they ask you to do stuff. Because in your pride, you need to be needed because you're looking for that attention. Or maybe you want a better brand of clothing, a better car, a bigger house, because you want the glory that comes from people who notice these things. These things get you noticed, so you like them. If that's the case, you might be putting yourself in the center of all and struggling with pride. Or fifthly, if you find yourself neglecting others, you probably struggle with pride. Do you find yourself preferring one person over another? And when you look into it, it's really just for superficial reasons. We consciously or unconsciously pass over maybe people who we think are weak or inconvenient or unattractive or just not like us because they don't really seem to offer us much. Well, that's all of those things are convicting. There are plenty more. And maybe more of us struggle with pride than we thought. Well, what we need to understand this morning is that in the kingdom of God, Seeking to be the center of it all, seeking to be the first, seeking to be the greatest is completely contrary to what Jesus wants. So he uses this child to illustrate, to help us understand that in the kingdom of God, the least is the greatest. And look with me, verse 2, Jesus called this little child and had him stand among them and said, become like little children. Verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, what is Jesus talking about here when he says, change and humble yourself like a child? What is it about the child that we should aspire to? Is it their character? I read one commentator this week who said, the child demonstrates pure innocence, untempted to self-advancement. I was like, are you for real? I was at a birthday party yesterday with 28 seven-year-olds. They're monsters. They always want to be first. Have you ever met a humble child who preferred the needs of a brother or sister or someone else in the creche? No, you have that toy. <laughs> no chance. Never, have you ever met a little boy who thinks of himself with sober judgment? A girl who wants you to be first to get the ice cream? No, Jesus isn't using the child to teach a lesson on behavior. He's using the child to teach a lesson about status and position. That's what the disciples are arguing about after all. Now in those days, children were loved, but in society they had no status. In terms of position and hierarchy, they weren't the greatest. In society, they were the least. And that's the point that Jesus is making. The greatest in the kingdom of God is not the one who's contending for positions at the top, but the one who's willing to make himself or herself nothing. Nothing. So the command really is humble yourself. And humility is where you refuse to think of yourself more highly than you ought. You count yourself as one who deserves nothing. You want to give everything. How do you know if you're humble? 
Well, let's look at five things. Five ways. If you're humble, you find it easy to identify evidence of grace in the lives of others. You're glad that God is at work in them. Two, if you're humble, you're gentle in your dealings with people. You don't treat people harshly. Number three, if you're humble, you welcome criticism and you consider if there's a grain of truth in it. Because you know you're not perfect. Or four, if you're humble, you'll not want to be the center of attention. You'd rather seek the interests of others. That's where true joy lies. Or five, if you're humble, you welcome everyone. Irrespective of their age, social class, how they dress, what they drive, whatever. It doesn't matter when we consider that we're all loved by God and saved by him into a church family. That's what matters. Make yourself nothing, Jesus says. Then you'll be great. Which is exactly what he has shown us. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, this is the way that Jesus turns about the world's values and shows us what the way to him looks like. And what the way of finding true happiness and true joy looks like. We read in Philippians 2 that we should have encouragement from being united with Christ, comfort in his love, fellowship with the Spirit. If we have any tenderness or compassion, we should be like-minded, having the same love, one in spirit and purpose, doing nothing, nothing, zip, deadly, zero, nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being the great one, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, the creator becoming a created thing, he humbled himself. The king of all creation humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's humility. He is our example. And God lifted him up. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. God God hates pride and honors humility. He lifted up his son when he lived like that. The reason why he came, friend, is to rescue you from pride. Pride, along with a whole list of other sins, sets you at odds with God. And you cannot save yourself. That's why God in love sent his son into the world to die for us. We needed someone to die for us. We needed someone to pay the price, the punishment for our sin for us. And he did, Jesus did, and when we believe in him, turn from our prideful ways and in humility trust in him as the ruler of our lives, as Nebuchadnezzar did in our reading earlier, we'll be saved. We'll find forgiveness. Finally, finally we'll be alive and know what life is really all about. Can I commend that to you? Trust him. Believe in him. 
For those of us who are brothers and sisters in the faith, the encouragement here is not to look down on one another. Don't compete with one another. Welcome one another in the way that you would welcome Jesus. That's what Jesus says in verse 5. Knowing that even if you don't, your pride might be a stumbling block to another believer's walk with God. And that's what Jesus warns us of in point two. Be warned, verses five to nine. He says, change or your attitude toward others, change your attitude toward others, or you will be a stumbling block in their walk with God. And that is a dangerous thing to do. That is a dangerous thing to do. Now, what happens here in the text, watch for this, is the way in which Jesus starts to use little ones and little child. He's not talking about the child anymore. He's just used the child as an illustration. And then he transitions in verses uh, 5 to the end of talking, to talking about believers. Um, if you, you know the New Testament, the most common reference to believers in the New Testament is children of God. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about believers who are in his name and in verse 6 who believe in him. So he's not just talking about all children in general. He's talking about little ones, weak ones, Christians, even those that we might be tempted to look down on. That's what he's talking about, okay? And what he's saying is don't vie for positions and jostle with and be humble, but don't be a stumbling block to other people. There are enough stumbling blocks in this world, things that cause us to trip up. That's what Jesus says in verse 7. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. The word for sin in here and things in verses 6 and 7 is the word scandalon in Greek or scandalizo. It's, it's, basically, it's basically stumbling block is what it means. Now have you ever been walking and all of a sudden trip on something or stumble over something? It's not a nice experience. Your arms flail, your heart races. All of a sudden, the prospect of standing on your feet is like 50-50. You know, you just don't know whether you're going to make it or not. And you're anxious. Yes? You pretend you're hailing a taxi or something like that just to get rid of the embarrassment of it. It's, uh, it's not nice. Now, stumbling is unnerving, but how do you feel if you cause someone else to stumble? Have you ever caused anyone? Have you ever tripped anyone up and caused them real pain? I have. When I was around 9 or 10, I was playing football out in the street. And I was distracted by one of my friends. And I didn't see a man walking past just where the goals were. And I kicked the ball. And it, it all just kind of happened in slow motion. At the same time as the ball powered along the ground towards the goal, the man's right foot came down and they met with terrible effect. His right foot just kind of swung out past his left leg. He spun around uncontrollably. Uh, he side-planted on the tarmac with a thud that is just ingrained in my memory for some reason. And I did what any other 10-year-old would do at this point. I ran away. I didn't get my ball back either. Um, but it, it was a horrible thing. I look back on it and I think about it. I think, oh, I caused that. That was a horrible thing. Now, I didn't do it intentionally. But I wasn't careful enough to make sure it didn't happen. And I felt bad about that. I should have taken greater care. And it's kind of what Jesus is talking about here. He says, if anyone causes any of these little ones, these believers, those who believe in me, to sin, that is stumble, it would be better for him to have a large millstone tied around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. In other words, this is a serious 
error to make. If you cause someone else to stumble and fall, it's a bad thing. Now remember, Jesus is addressing pride here. Pride is a problem before verse 5. And is mentioned again in verse 10. Pride is the subject here. So how does your pride cause other people to sin? It's sinful for yourself. But how might your pride cause other people to sin? Think about it. Well, I suppose I could cause you to stumble if I ignore you, if I mistreat you, if I slam the door in your face if you're expecting a welcome. I could estrange you from the church and make your experience so bad that you might want to wander off and just forget completely about the church. You might even follow down that route and think that you can live without a church family Entirely, but that's a sinful view. Hebrews 10 says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Now, Jesus says, come on, guys, let's not put stumbling blocks in each other's ways. There's so many ways that we can do it. And it's a reminder here that God's people are not meant to be those who lead people into sin and cause them to stumble. We're supposed to be the people that lead people out of sin and remove the stumbling blocks by God's grace. In verse 7, there are enough stumbling blocks in this world to deal with without people in a church family tripping each other up because of some prideful attitude. That's why Jesus says, put it to death. Cut it off. One of the ways that we stop ourselves and take care not to cause people to stumble is by dealing with the ways in which we stumble ourselves. By stopping ourselves from stumbling, that's Jesus' concern in verses 8 and 9. Only in doing so will we avoid making other people stumble. So he says, deal decisively, deal decisively with your own sin. And you'll keep others from stumbling. Look with me, verse 8 and 9. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or feet and be thrown into eternal fire. Same goes for the eye. Now Jesus is using hyperbole, of course. He's not actually saying amputate, cut, gouge, all that kind of stuff. It's figurative language. But it's seriously strong figurative language. Um, How much do we coddle pride? How much do we actually coddle the things that really we should be cutting off it's a dangerous thing to do it's not something that we always want to do I mean when we're seeking our own self interest actually those are the things that we try to protect the most that's why we get defensive if someone points something out to us that we don't like But Jesus says here, it's better for you to suffer the cost of putting pride to death than to end up in hell because of it. And here again, he just talks about hell as a real place. A place to which you can go when this life is over. It's heaven or hell. But what does it look like then to put this stuff to death? What does it look like to chop pride off and to gouge out pride? Well, this is, of course, where the gospel comes in. So often we have this view that the gospel is just this entry for the entry point into the Christian life. But actually, it's for every day in the Christian life. The gospel should shape how we live and act in every respect, even in the church family, how we live and act with each other and interact toward one another or with one another. So the gospel must regulate everything we think and say and do. So the gospel says... 
It's only by grace that you have been saved. And it's not of yourselves so that no one can boast. There's pride being removed. It's the gift of God. In other words, there's nothing great in you that made you deserving of salvation. You are the same as every other person in the room who who has trusted Christ. You recognize that you're nothing. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. You need to be saved. So that's the start of the mindset. Believing the gospel changes what you value. So you start to place supreme value on honoring Jesus above all things and glorifying him. That's the supreme thing in your life. Not glorifying and honoring yourself, but him. And then you start, the gospel helps you treasure and value supremely the kind of character and model of Christ. So humility becomes central. It becomes your ambition not to be better than everybody else or to be served, but to be least and to serve everyone. It's a radical change in our orientation. And believing the gospel, of course, changes how you view sin. You see it not as something to to keep or something that God accepts in any respects, but something to be Something to be cut off and gouged out. So you take conviction of sin seriously when your conscience is pricked. You take the words of a brother or sister who loves you seriously whenever they say, I've really noticed this in you. Would you like me to pray with you about this? And believing the gospel, of course, changes the way that you view your church family. We see one another as vital to us changing. We're not a meeting, we're a family. It's not optional, but crucial. It's not just for superficial relationship, like it's some club. It's for sanctification. It's for changing to be more like Jesus. That's why we're here. So when we start to have things like that in our, in our mindset, when the gospel starts to shape our lives so that we understand everything about us and everything we are as a church family, then that's how we start to cut out pride. Applying the gospel in everyday life serves us so well in that respect. To the point that those who try to be the greatest will cause many people to sin, but the humble are the ones who will be least likely to cause others to stumble. Least likely. So be warned, Jesus says. And verse 10, he says, See to it then that you do not look down. Don't look down on anyone. For whatever reason you think you might be greater or superior. No, change the way you think and act. Be caring. Be loving, he says. And this is point three. Let God's care for his children shape the way that you care for your brothers and sisters. That's what he's saying. Then you'll show the kind of love that should characterize a church family that gets the gospel and lives out the gospel. So how does he care for his children? Well, verses 10 to 14 provide a couple of examples. He says... Verse 10, he shows us that God works to protect them. I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Now, what does that mean? Uh, Well, it's not talking about guardian angels. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches in the book of Daniel that there are some angels who are, if you like, representative before God over some nations or regions. Uh, Revelation suggests that there are angels that are, represent before God churches. And of course, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14 talks about how God sends angels to serve those who are um, moving towards salvation, who are, who are his. Um, but it doesn't talk about 
a one angel for one believer kind of thing. It doesn't talk about the guardian angel sense like that. It's, not like, it's like football defending, right? It's not man-to-man marking, it's more zonal defending. Do you understand what I mean? So what is, it, what is he talking about then? Well, if, if the believers we look down on have heavenly messengers who report on their situation before God, seeing his face, then it's patently clear that God cares for them. Therefore, you can understand how serious it is if we look down on people that God cares for so much. That's not right. Especially when it's down to some kind of prideful frivolity. You know, something that's not really, actually in the grand scheme of things, particularly important. But if God cares for his children enough to commission angels to help them when they need help, then we ought to care for every believer in the same way. Don't look down on them, Jesus says. Look after them. Don't look down on them, look after them. And then in verse 12 to 14, we have the second thing. That although we in our pride might be glad to see the back of some people, God cares for all of his children so much that he's not willing to lose even one of them. Look with me, verse 12, Jesus uses this familiar parable. A man has a hundred sheep and one wanders away. What will he do? Will he not leave the 99 in the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? Now, don't mistake this parable for the same parable in Luke chapter 15. It's, it's kind of the same parable, but it's spoken in different contexts. The one in Luke 15 is where Jesus is teaching unbelieving Pharisees about God's concern for non-Christians, even like Samaritans and so on. But here, Jesus is teaching disciples, so it's a different audience, about God's concern for believers, so it's a different point. Okay, Like any preacher, he knows how to use a good illustration twice in different ways. Right, That's what he's doing. So what does it actually mean? Well, he said, if you've got 100 sheep and you lose one, you might cut your losses. Would you? You've still got 99. Why bother with a wanderer? I mean, if they wandered once, they might wander again. Might it not be a little bit easier in life to not worry? Just let this one go. You've still got 99. Well, you wouldn't do that in your family, would you? I mean, around the table. You know, you sit there and there's two of your kids, but one's missing. You wouldn't just say, where's, where's little Johnny? Oh, we've got two. That's all right. I mean, we just no. You love, you love all, you love everyone individually. You're not willing that any. You'd be up. You'd be phoning everybody. You'd be, you'd be checking to see if he's playing hide and seek in the cupboards, or you know, you'd be looking. You'd be in love, moving to act, to rescue and find. And when you find, you're joyful. It's not like oh, I found the wanderer. You know, I found this this grumpy one again. You know, it's like. Wonderful, And that's the illustration that we're given. God cares so much for you. Do you get this? God cares so much for you. God loves you so much. He's not willing to lose you. To let you wander off. He's concerned, lovingly concerned, as a father ought to be for his children. If they wander into sin. God loves you this way. And he's not coming down heavy on you. He's rejoicing. He wants you to realize the error of wandering. But he's coming to you with welcoming grace. Bringing you back into the fold. The church family where you ought to be with joy. He's happy. He's happier than the folks who were still sitting in the pews. With joy. If God cares for his children... 
in that way, then should that not shape how we care for one another? What this demands of us is going beyond the superficial relationships that a church of this size can nurture. What it requires is that we make sure we're starting to build healthy relationships where we know one another deeply and love one another deeply. Do you have those relationships? How can you get them? Well, our new growth group setup is about to start in two months' time. We're going to be making announcements about it and sign-ups will take place for it in the next few weeks. There's the perfect place. We must have a place where we might care for each other and love one another to fulfill what God wants us to do. Look, the point of this parable is, the point of this section is that God is loving. And we should show that same love, the kind of love that characterizes the church. I mean, how often have we seen someone leave and we've secretly thought, oh, well, things might be a little bit easier without them. But even if people have been stubborn or awkward or they haven't listened to the counsel, they should be welcomed and lovingly sought out and restored. That's what God is calling us to do. Not to look down on others or think that we're somehow better than others, but to live like this. God doesn't want us to look down our noses at them. He wants us to restore them. And that's what uh, Paul is going to look at next week in the rest of Matthew chapter 18. So we must watch out for one another. We must keep a loving eye on those who are in times of vulnerability and danger times, really, like moving house or students going to uni, getting married, uh, having a baby, having young children, coming into some money, retirement, bereavement. These are always times where there is the potential for temptation and wandering. And we need to be aware of that. And we need to be in the kind of relationships where we are conscious of what's going on in one another's lives so that we might serve one another in love and in humility prefer the needs of that person to our own. Would we really rather sit and watch an episode of Casualty than phone up a brother or sister who is struggling? I would sometimes. I admit it. I struggle with pride in that respect. We all do. And that's the kind of thing we need to put to death if we're going to be the kind of people who truly love one another. Jesus at the start called for change. He called for us to be humble. He warned us and helped us to see that the way in which we stop other people from stumbling is to help, is to stop stumbling ourselves, cut off, deal with pride seriously so that we don't look down on other people but we are actually loving towards them. This is the way the gospel shapes a community like this. And I wonder if it's our ambition. This demands more than the easy life that we might be living right now. It demands a deeper concern. It's not easy. It might get messy. But that's okay. One day Jesus will come back and it'll all be perfect. In the meantime, we serve one another in love with humility. Let's pray for one another this week.
that we might put pride to death. It matters when it comes to our walk with God. It matters when it comes to mission. Let's pray together.